Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Paul presents the universal problem as a problem of hostility. And he presents the universal solution as the peace that's to be found in Christ. Problem, solution. He describes this hostility, he says there's a wall of hostility. Now I think he's referencing the wall that exists literally in the temple, but he's talking about a wall that exists throughout humanity. And the resolution then is in the establishment of a new humanity. And this is what he says, let's read together in Ephesians 2, 14-15. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. I think we can find this hostility all around us. I think it's in Moberly. Maybe it's a kind of invisible hostility. There is a large minority, a kind of underclass, the, the underemployed, the unemployed, those who have the stigma of poverty, drug addiction, mental illness, that are centered upon this kind of underclass. And there's the wall which separates this dispossessed underclass from the possessed and empowered. And maybe this came into play. I came to see this in the recent vote over Medicaid extension. That is that it's not merely money that separates these two classes, but I think there is a religion which is the religion of this place. Extending health care, you know, basic health care to the poor. A local Christian politician, he said this is a moral issue. But of course he meant it as if you vote for it, well you're voting on the wrong side. That is, not in the moral sense of helping the poor was he saying it's a moral issue. He implied it's a moral issue because these people are undeserving. They're undeserving of even basic health care. And the vehement opposition to helping, what, 300,000 people just in the state of Missouri who live below the poverty line, including a disproportionate number of single mothers, those with mental illness, maybe those most likely to be affected by the coronavirus, basically. I think it revealed a deep antagonism. There needs to be a kind of line of separation and hostility toward the poor and minorities as their dispossession implies a deserved possession on some people's part. I see the Confederate flag flown occasionally and I always think, well, that's a clear demarcation in Little Dixie. But maybe the evangelical faith sometimes functions very much like a confederate flag 
For those who are more financially able and don't need to waive their separation, the religion serves to create a kind of bubble of division, a degree of separation with its undercurrent of racism and classism, and it depends upon literal, many times, or metaphorical walls. Paul describes Christ as breaking down these dividing walls of hostility. But I think to grasp the significance of this broken wall, it's necessary to understand how the hostility is all around us, how it constitutes our world. It's not just that we require immigrants be kept on the other side of that literal wall on the southern border, or that we require the barrier to sustain our identity on this side of the wall. I think that we live and move and have our identities provided by walls of hostility. And this hostility resides within us, and it's the vortex by which we're surrounded. And so the wall, in Paul's explanation, is an identity which would use the law the wall, in other words, he's equating those two things, as its primary mode of who God is, its identity of who God is and who we are. In Judaism, this literal dividing wall in the temple represented a kind of caste system, right? You have the priestly class or caste that was created. You know, only priests could go beyond the Holy of Holies, the wall from the holy place into the Holy of Holies. And of course the temple was a series of walls. The boundaries between the priestly caste and the general population of Jews was sharply patrolled. And the rules and privileges pertaining to priestly families, you know, especially in the period of what we call Second Temple Judaism, that is a major part of the Talmud, describing what the rules are that would not just separate Jews from Gentiles, but separate within Jews certain classes, certain sacrificial offerings the priests were entitled to. And there were detailed rules for how you trace lineage and who could marry, even within the various Jewish classes and there were about 10 lineages traced back you know from those who descended from Babylon and the Jews who returned to the land of Israel from this exile in the Babylonian exile it included the priests the Levites the Israelites but then there were several subcategories the converts there were emancipated slaves there were children of forbidden relationships. There were children who they didn't know their paternity. Priests, Levites, they're permitted to want, marry one another, but they're not permitted to marry with these other people, and these other people can only marry within their class. And so certainly they're not to marry or intermarry with Gentiles. The Gentiles are sort of the outcasts. I think what we see in Israel seems to be duplicated in some form by all or most all ancient peoples. Maybe the caste system of India dates back to 1200 BC as this 
most similar to the Jewish caste system. In the Rig Veda, the ancient Hindu book, the primal man, Purush, he destroys himself, you know, he has the various body parts, and out of these body parts, human society is created, the, the Varnas or the various castes. And so the Brahmins are the priests, they're the upper caste class, they're the teachers. They're created from his head. The warriors or the rulers are created from his hands. The farmers and traders are from his thighs. And the laborers are from his feet. And of course then there are the outcasts who don't fit into any class and they're the untouchables. There's the untouchable jobs that actually you see this in Japan. Most people don't know there's a caste system. Many Japanese don't know there's a caste system until it comes time to marry. And one of the primary occupations of detectives in Japan is that the family will hire a detective to trace the lineage of the potential marriage partner to make sure they're not of an outcast family. And so there were the untouchable jobs, toilet cleaning, garbage removal, it's in India, it's in Japan. In India, you know, the untouchables, very much like the black-white separation in the United States, there were separate entrances, separate, you know, any kind of public facility, separate education. In Japan, there are villages, thousands of these villages that are traditional homes of the untouchables or the Buraku, the village people, they have their own villages. And so the defiled in Japan. I was surprised, you know, because in Japan it's, I think what we, you're discovering is something that's just there in ancient societies. It's there in Leviticus, same sort of ideas. Those having to do with death, those having to do with blood, those having to do with animal skins. You remember when Peter was at the house of Simon the Tanner? Many people think that is in itself a sign that he's going to a lower caste kind of home. And of course he's going to go from Simon the Tanner, the Jew, to a complete outcast, to Cornelius. And so things having to do with even childbirth, blood. In Japan, even to this day, people who perform funerals, they're a kind of a, a class or a kind of outcast. In ancient Israel, touching dead bodies was a, uh, it was a defiling task. In uh, Kyoto in 1015, we can trace that the many people were killed and they, they had the, the city was defiled by all these dead bodies and so the Kigari, the defiled, became the Kiyomi, the purifiers. And that creates a kind of cycle, and many people believe this is where we actually get the origins of the caste system. What I'm saying is that caste, or class, or racism, it's just pervasive. Even in the Russian Orthodox Church, the clergy over time, they developed a kind of hereditary caste of priests and you couldn't marry, you know, these priestly castes could not marry outside priestly families. 
and finally this was broken up in 1867. There's a, a, a new book written by a, a woman named Isabel Wilkerson and she says that in fact the, the idea of racism in the United States, the more accurate term would be it's actually a caste system. She thinks race is an insufficient term. You know, race, actually the idea of race only dates back four or five hundred years. Caste date, dates back as far back as we can trace. And her idea is that caste is comprehensive and it gets at the underlying structure. You really can't always see it, but there's a kind of undergirding inequality in you know, the services, the injustices, the dis disparities and the respect or even the sense of beauty. She notes that prior to the Holocaust, the Nazis are very interested in the American legal system. And Nazi Germany borrowed, they actually sent lawyers in the 1930s, in 1935, they sent lawyers to study the Jim Crow laws of the United States. And it's those laws that the Nazis are going to implement in what are called the Nuremberg Laws, and they laid the groundwork for the persecution of people in the Holocaust. The Nuremberg Laws then determined who belonged to what group, and the idea here is that her point that she's making with this is there was no more strongly embedded caste system than that that you found in the United States, so much so that when the Germans decide to implement a kind of caste system against the Jews, they're going to use this legislation. And of course the American rules or laws applied to Puerto Ricans, African Americans, Filipinos, in some 30 states. She says no other country, not even South Africa, possessed a comparably developed set of relevant laws. And so for most of the history of the United States, black people have suffered as a result, not just discrimination, but this actually shows itself in higher death rates in nearly every category until just recently. And something rather shocking has happened. Mortality rates have shifted. Mortality and morbidity, a study by two Princeton professors, they've recognized that there's an increase in midlife mortality among white Americans. This is, I'm quoting from the study. Historically, over time, we've seen that people who are losing, who fear being taken over by others, even if it's not the reality, do desperate and terrible things. They find that while midlife mortality rates continue to fall among all education classes in most of the rich world, middle-aged whites in the U.S. with a high school diploma, they've experienced increasing midlife mortality since the late 1990s. And with this then, there is the number of deaths, they call it the deaths of despair. Death by drugs, alcohol, and suicide have increased. There's an increase in heart disease of cancer in this group of people. And they conclude that the combined effect means that, that the mortality rates of whites with no more than a high school degree, which were around 30% lower prior to 1999, it grew to 30% higher than blacks. The well-being of a higher caste 
depends upon the oppression of a lower caste. And the fear of the breaking down of this caste system, I believe the turn to white supremacy, the turn to anti-foreign rhetoric, it reflects the role of hostility in our culture. The walls of hostility that we're feeling at this moment in time have been made obvious maybe by their collapse. One of my favorite stories, maybe, get it, maybe the Christian moment that we don't actually see it as a Christian moment occurs in the story of Huckleberry Finn. I suppose we've all read Huckleberry. Do you Canadians read Huckleberry Finn? Okay. And in it, you know, Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens, he is describing then the antagonism that occurs between white people and black people, between the runaway slave Jim and Huck is helping Jim. They're floating down the river. And of course, Huck had been to church a few times and he had heard the preacher explain that slavery was there in the Bible. And of course, Samuel Clemens had also been to church. This is, we know from his own experience in Hannibal. And the, the weight of the religion, at least in this part of Missouri, was behind slavery. And the Bible itself and the mores of the religion and the community informed Huck, i.e. Samuel Clemens, that to help Jim, the runaway slave, is a sin. In fact, his soul is in danger. That, you know, as they're floating down the Mississippi, this is what Huck is arguing with himself. He knows his soul is damned to hell if he should help Jim escape. And so he decides he wants to go to heaven. So he pens a letter to Mrs. Watson, who's Jim's rightful owner, in quotes, explaining where Jim is and how she can catch her runaway slave. And then he begins to think about all the conversations. You know, he's going to deliver this letter. And then he begins to think about the two of them, I'm quoting here, a floating along, talking and singing and laughing. Jim had told him about his wife that he had been torn away from, told him about his kids. And he begins to weaken. He knows it's his Christian duty to send this letter to Mrs. Watson. And of course, the key scene may be in all of American literature. I think this is the height of Mark Twain's powers. He knows that the choice is going to heaven and turning Jim in or going to hell and not sending a letter. And of course, he says, all right, then I'll go to hell. And he tears the letter to pieces so that helping Jim means a betrayal of the society of Hannibal, a betrayal of his understanding of the law, a betrayal ultimately of his understanding of his religious duty. And of course, the irony is this is the Christian moment in the story. This is the moment when the wall of separation between Jim and Huck is torn down. For Paul, the wall of hostility is found in the religion, the Jewish religion. It's found in the law. It's found in the orientation to the law that would divide people. And where we identify with the law, there is a part of us which would become 
the law. You know, we would enforce the law. We would send the letter. We would be the police. And there's a part of us against which the law is enacted. And we can say, you know, who is this us? Well, it could be within us or it could be between us. The force of the law which would take up into ourselves that we imagine we identify with this understanding, it becomes at the same time a force against us, within us, or against others. So that to occupy the place of hostility, to identify with the law, to enact the law and its ethic, is to enact division. The law needs division. The Jewish law needs division. Human laws, human ethos needs division. And the divide defines what is included by what is excluded. Jews, well, we know they're not Gentiles. Brahmins, we know that they're not untouchables. And it's a divide in the body. The law of the mind, Paul says, against the law of the flesh. The ego is over and against the superego. The desire of the flesh is over and against the desire of the conscience. Maybe we could put it like this. The feeling of inferiority is enacted from a supposed agent that's within us of superiority. The more the inferior is ground into the dirt, the more the superior is made to feel powerful. That's a psychological problem, but that's also a social problem. The more the slave is made to feel the lash, to that degree the master is empowered. And of course the great irony here is we can be both slave and master. The masochistic pain is enjoyed by the agent enacting the pain. Our own police... The agent of the law is afforded the pleasure of inflicting the power of the law. Whether that policeman is the one in our own conscience or the one in our society. This is a psychology and this is a sociology. And so this is why the hostility that Paul is describing is universal. It pertains to all of us as individuals and it pertains to our interaction in human society. And of course Paul's point is this wall is not of divine construction but it's constituted by human hostility. But our tendency is to project this hostility onto God. In this it's not a problem of the law it's what we would do with the law in fact. You know Paul says the law is holy, just and good. It's not the law itself but we would take a law and make it our religion. We would take the law and in its hostility we would reify. And so the problem is not with the law but with our orientation. It is only the Jew who ceases to cling to the law of being Jewish. Who ceases to cling to the caste system that can become a Christian. It's only the Gentile who ceases to refuse the Jew. It's only the master who can embrace his slave as an equal that can be a Christian. It's only the man who can embrace the woman as his equal. Paul is going through all of the social classes. Those who would sustain the normal laws of the society. The normal laws of Hannibal, Missouri. 
they really can't enter into this community in which the characteristic is the broken dividing wall. Those who would sustain the laws, you know, it's always obvious. Well, one man must die that the nation would be saved. The sacrifices are necessary. Some must be trodden on. There must be a lower class. There must be evil that the good will abound. And living within the domain of the law, maybe it's intellectually satisfying, as the worst evil can be accounted for as necessary. And maybe it's existentially satisfying as it separates one out as a law keeper, a law enforcer from those who experience the underside of the law. So this is not God's wall. It's a human wall. It is this wall of human hostility that separates Jew from Gentile, that separates humankind from God, that separates from the reality of who God is himself. The great irony of a, many Christian theologies is we imagine the hostility is on the part of God. And we've made the religion all about curing us of God's hostility towards us. Paul is saying the hostility is a human hostility. This is the wall that Christ has torn down and to confuse this wall and the maintenance of this law with the Christian faith, I'm afraid that's the way the Christian faith often functions. To emphasize, to accentuate the division. I'm afraid that's a form of blasphemy. And this is the significance of the peace that Christ provides. And this is the conclusion here that Paul will make in chapter 4. Look at verses 4, 4 to 6. Of course, he says there's no slaves, there's no defiled, there's no division. There is no caste system. In his body, he has done away with hostility. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.